0: Uh, we're we're the Temp Agency. Yeah, this is this is the Temp Agency <laughs> edition
1: of uh, the Booker Podcast,
2: <laughs> where where we have you know a, a, a few guests on to uh, replace certain members who decided that they didn't want to be on.
1: <laughs> uh. <laughs>
2: The replacements, OSIN Bunker Edition. All right. Well, I'm just going to start this podcast off and we'll just wander. I mean, I'm sure you guys have listened to this thing and have a general idea of how chaotic it is. It's, uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> so, all right. Let's just kick into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the OSIN Bunker Podcast. I am OSIN Technical, your belated announcer, host, and slightly, you know, whacking various moles. Enthusiast for today um, I have two people With me today who are replacing My other server hosts who are Either indisposed Or sort of on the Other side of the planet um, So we have the Intel Hub here and we have Cassius Belly who both are Extremely experienced in the OSINT Space and I'm going to say that very generously To both of them um, They, they <laughs> definitely uh, we, we all talk all the time and this should be an interesting episode as we mainly focus on Ukraine. Um, because, of course, whenever we go away for a few weeks and have a bit of a break for reasons, Ukraine just ends up melting down. So, I think we should probably just launch into it and say, um, you know, conscription. What's everyone's thoughts on the issue?
3: Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, um, yeah, go on. I,
0: I think generalized it's really easy to say that it's rough it's, it's going really rough for Russia um in regards to the the training and turnaround time that most of these conscripts are getting in the mobilization effort overall um, it seems like there might be two different directions that that mobilization routes going one of which is to fill in and try to try to Enabled some of those elements that have already faced over attrition, and then the other half seems to be more so the the actual formation of new elements to to try to fill in some lines on the forward line of troops for Russia. Um, however, it seems for the most part they're 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 numbers that are being added to BTGs and DTPs that are already over attrited.
2: Yeah, and I think as our sort of resident uh, enlisted personnel enjoyer now. You, you, we should we should probably yeah. talk about just how hard it is to actually generate new units out of what is effectively nothing. It it you yes know, you, you actually need <laughs> yeah. command structure to to do things.
3: And uh, I guess especially in uh, in Russia, since there's a obvious lack of uh, I mean infrastructures and money and even officer and structures. But so I don't know honestly how it will go, but. Uh, we we i think we have all seen all these uh videos on the footage showing all uh, h- how people are not prepared to for this on the uh, whole they're uh they're very they have uh, very poor uh, equipment so honestly uh i don't know how it will go uh for uh, the conscript but uh, i think it's uh it will be very difficult on the ground. And uh one question remains is why they didn't mobilize since the beginning. And um, why now? Probably because there's a lot of casualties. But uh, yeah, I don't know what you think.
2: Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, at least seeing the most recent offensive um, from Kharkiv and, and, you know, in that area is that mm. once Ukrainian forces were able to break, you know, those Russian front lines, those sort of islands of russian control and towns really they were able to just run around in the rear areas because apart from maybe a few police units and i i don't know maybe some national guard soldiers there was just nothing on the russian yes. side that was just behind the front line yeah. i mean we saw civilians openly you know up and hanging ukrainian flags all over the place before the ukrainians actually arrived um yeah there just there wasn't that control behind the front line and that probably was a manpower issue and that is somewhere yeah. at least that i think that sort of conscripts can fill in easily is just putting bodies behind the front line so that you know instead of the ukrainians being able to drive down you know 50 kilometers and pickup trucks without facing any you know issues or any resistance at all there's at least you know a few people to take some pot shots at them or or Put up a bit of a resistance so maybe there's a possibility that other units can come in and kind of plug the gap
0: yeah i mean absolutely you're right and looking at russian doctrine and strategy overall um one, one of the general key assumptions that, key assumptions that was made beforehand before we saw russia uh, conduct their invasion was that they would utilize their conscripts as rear area security and ensuring that you know key infrastructure key trains actually controlled in order to enable the main elements, the the professional army, the contract army, to move forward. Um, But that's something that was completely missing um, throughout the initial portions of the invasion all the way to today. What, like 200 200 and what, like 14 days in, something crazy like that, into their 72-hour special military operation, quote-unquote?
2: Yeah, and I'm willing to bet that actually the MP units and, you know, those other rear-air security units have sort of gotten hollowed out as they've been used to kind of fill in losses in the front-line units. And now they're basically yep. facing issues where there's just kind of, again, no one behind yeah. those front lines. Yeah, and yeah. I, think,
3: I think... Go ahead. Yeah, 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 I was going to say uh, there's a, a very huge problem uh, on the ground uh, in terms of... Uh, people available for their, uh, I'd say, operation. But, uh, yeah, as, as I said, I, I think I, I've told it many, many times in our group chat, but, uh, you know, I I know some people on the ground, on, uh, even on Russian side, and they're all confirming that it's going to be a, a, a very bloody mess. And, uh, yeah, I think this is a, a very huge problem for Russia because they they can't... They can't present for even for their own uh opinion. They can't present uh, a loss or uh, anything. And I think we've all seen um how the uh I mean the Medias and uh, all this uh I'd say elites uh, in Russia reacted to uh, the counter offensive made by uh, Ukraine. And uh, now they have to make any progress on the ground. They they have to show that they can win in Ukraine and uh they don't have any choice. And uh I think they are they're now starting to put everything they have, even conscripts, they don't have any training, they don't have uh, any decent weapons. And uh yeah this is honestly this is going to be a a very mess.
2: Yeah I think I had I had joked about it, but I, I'm sadly seeing this become more realistic is what yeah. would have been, you know, new created or or newly minted mechanized units being mainly infantry, you know, maybe yeah. with older mm. trucks to sort of move them around from place to place. But, you know, still primarily foot mobile uh, groupings and, and foot mobile yep. sort of operational units, which I mean, I, I think we've talked about, you know, really how that restricts the Russians if they were to sort of put together an offensive with their, you know, new conscript units, sort of where they would be able to put them into use. Because Russian strategy, you know, since the Cold War has kind of relied on that. Use your heavy mechanized units to make a breakthrough mm. and then use lighter mechanized units to exploit it. And, you know, then use VDV as well behind the front lines to cause chaos and, um, and and. Indict or, or stop any Possible you know counter Offensives or, or reinforcing units To move in to stop you and I Mean now the Russians really seem To be kind of moving in that Direction where they're going to overcome That by just throwing men at the problem Um
1: yep.
2: And and I I, I I really don't see A place where or, or there are only a few places where I feel like That could work um short of just putting bodies in the way of any Ukrainian counter-offensives. Um, and I, I think that really is focused in the North because as it's been for the entire war, there's definitely this really big difference between the competence and the ability of the Southern offensive to actually get things done, you know, in their terrain and, and within the realm of possibility versus what, you know, you Russian forces in the North of Ukraine and in the East of Ukraine have been able to do. Um, and so i think any conscripts going to the southern front will probably be integrated into existing units or actually kind of put to work in a reasonable manner for what they're capable yeah. of doing versus in the mm-hmm. north where i really do expect them to just be kind of thrown at the Ukraine.
3: yeah yeah this is basically what what i've heard from the ground and this is even what uh, some uh, russian officer are expecting on uh, uh, around Kharkiv and all these areas I think they 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 are going to really throw all their, their uh, mobilized the uh, people and they will send them in this uh, in this area and I I think this is maybe uh, the way that Russia found to you know uh fill the hole and uh, just send uh, tons of people trying to uh um uh crush uh Ukrainian position but uh, honestly I think it's it's not uh it's obviously not uh the good way to do and uh one of my question was uh do you think guys uh belarus will be involved in in this uh in this uh new action i think
2: um i mean if you look at the belarusian armed forces yeah they're not exactly known for being the most capable you know, grouping of, of of military power. I mean, yeah. you know, they have like thirty thousand active duty service members, um, mm. and they're still all in Belarus right now. Um, so basically, their options would be basically pick up the entire Belarusian armed forces and move them over to Donetsk and move them over to Eastern Ukraine. Um, yeah, which would possibly cause internal issues in Belarus as. The army kind of exists there, additionally, partially to tamp down any unrest and 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 any other issues. They don't exactly have that as strong of a state security force as Russia does, um, mm. or or at least as um as ingrained or as officialized. Um, so there there is that tendency to use call the army in for those those larger scale issues. Um And I think sort of plunking down the entire army, you know, hundreds of miles away in, in a situation where they can't easily kind of pull them back would introduce some issues and, and internal issues in Belarus right now. I mean, as as I will always, always make this joke on every episode of the podcast,
3: yeah. what can <laughs> Russia
2: do? Send the VDV? I mean...
3: <laughs> they already send. They tried that on a... fifth. Uh, yeah. Kind
2: of
0: um I, I think that Belarus's utilization in, in the next phase of this is more of the same from the initial days of the invasion um, we'll probably see an uptick in TBMs being utilized from Belarus potentially some UAVs um, and maybe some ground-based aircraft um, other than that I I don't really see Belarus fully committing to committing forces for Russia unless, essentially, their options are hey do this or die, which very well could be the case. But even if that was the case, um, I feel like there would be a very large uh, political issue within Belarus once that was announced. So I think it's 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 a very interesting subject to talk about at the very least.
2: Yeah. I, I, again, at at some point it, it's 30,000 soldiers. Yes. They're professional. Yeah. They're, they're actually equipped. They're, they're in mm-hmm. units, which is definitely an advantage over the current Russian contract force. Um, <laughs> yeah. But they're kind of needed in Belarus just to be yep. in Belarus. Um, exactly. Whereas there is a possibility that I guess Belarus could maybe sell or transfer some of their equipment to Russia. Um, though, I mean, if you look at the Belarusian Armed Forces, I mean, their, their main, you know, their main armored personnel carrier, I think is still, um, the BTR 70, um, which, you know, the Ukrainians aren't, or the Russians, you know, at this point, if they're trying to generate new units, won't refuse. Um, but I, I, I definitely think there is a certain level of, um, of need for you know newer or not newer but more equipment than belarus is able to provide i mean let me let me double check uh yeah i mean they have what two battalions of btr 82as 39 btr 70s they just yeah it's kind of it's kind of pathetic
0: um to to make an actual change and I, i think that kind of goes back to the first point that we were talking about um, in regards to this, this shift, and um, hey, Russia is a mechanized military. They, they operate with mechanized infantry, which essentially cleans up the mess after the artillery gets the job done. Well, at least that's what they're supposed to do with the, uh, with the Russian Doctrine. Um, what we're seeing right now with the mobilization efforts and whatever our efforts pull forward in the future is a primarily light infantry-type force, at best, maybe maybe mobilized infantry, um, but certainly not mechanized infantry or anything along those lines, which brings its issues. You, you lose mobility, you, and when you lose mobility, you lose capability. Um, and you also came the the negative trait of being able to be targeted by fires much more effectively. And something tells me that those conscripts aren't going to want to fight when they see, you know everyone else that they just got dragged off to, to the front line with uh, blown up by um, Ukrainian fires in a TAI that was already made.
2: Yeah. And that is the one advantage. The Ukrainians have so much of a more complete ISR capability at the moment. They are in a lot better position where they can put down fires onto staging points and they can put down fires onto transport links and troop concentrations. And I mean, we're seeing uh, again, I'm, like this is maybe two month old information at this point, but I think it still rings true though in war, things change fairly quickly. Um, but the Russian soldier who is commenting on the fact that the Ukrainians are able to call down fire on them incredibly quickly um and, and sort of accurately with their very good level of fusion between those lower level units and headquarters and you know the the background infrastructure links in the background. Command links to actually then get the fire onto a location, um, and I think that's continuing to hold true. I mean, they've they've definitely taken routes that are unusual to get that proper level of of of, of sort of togetherness that that proper fusion between those lower levels and upper levels. I mean, we've seen them using Google meets and, and Google hangouts to, you know, set up live streaming from their drone to, you know, yes. a, a, a battalion headquarters, but Hey, that works. It's yep. generally yeah. pretty secure and, you know, they're getting live data back to the headquarters. Um, so I, I think, think you said, a Oh no, God,
0: I think you said a really key word also in there. Uh, you said fusion. Um, and that brings RV straight to intelligence. Words. So, like, <laughs> you, you said a major buzzword right there, and I think you you killed it. Because looking at Ukraine, Ukraine is doing an amazing job at collecting that information uh, through FMV, processing it, exploit, exploiting it, and then disseminating it. And then not only through imagery, but also, you know, second human sources. Fusing it all uh, all together and providing their their battlefield commanders... Timely and accurate information in order to make those those decision points, and in order to enable fires and maximize damage on the enemy, which is exactly what we train in the Western military. So huh, props to Ukraine for it's doing it like amazingly. That. Almost like we trained them since what? What year? How many years? <laughs> it's almost yeah. like we've Meanwhile, been
2: telling them exactly how to beat the <laughs> Russians for eight years now.
0: Almost like the U.S. Army actually wrote the book with Ukraine on how to be, how to defeat the Russian BTG.
2: Yeah, Um. the Ukrainians are are writing the second half of the book now, but it it definitely, and these lessons will probably be taken into the future, and I would be seriously nervous if I were China right now, because... A lot of these lessons are being integrated very
3: very well yeah, um, yeah, yeah. that's the whole question I think and I wonder how, how, it, how China will re- react uh, in terms of uh, military equipment and uh, training and uh, you know they, they also watching all this war and I guess they, are, they have uh, their own officer learning and uh, I don't know how they will act in the future, but uh, yeah it, I think it will be interesting to keep an eye on them and uh, see what they can deploy and how they can uh, practice war, right?
2: I will say, at least with the drone warfare element, if you look mm. at where most of those drones are from, you know, DJI, yeah, China. the DJI. supplier China. And yep. I don't think we've seen as much integration of those cheaper drones into the Chinese military, at least openly, though, again, the Chinese have a pretty good control over what they publicize with their you know, structural stuff. Um, they're, they're sort of their organizational and, and doctrinal mm. level thinking. Um, yeah. But I would have to imagine at this point that, you know, they're able to also spend some time and integrate those lighter unmanned aerial assets into sort of their force structure. I've, I mean, I've always argued that, you know, if anything, we need fire team level drone support, you know, in the U S military. Um, which is what we're seeing in Ukraine now. Everyone and their freaking dog has, you know, a little, yeah. you know, DJI Mavic or, or something that they can just throw up briefly to get a picture of, you know, what's over the next hill or, you know, maybe what's behind that building um, yep. or, or what's in that trench, um, which is a huge advantage even at the fire team level. It, it really allows you to get that personalized info, um, you know, for, for that thing that you want to do and, and where you want to go know it's actually safe um, and these, again these were these were made these drones were made for regular people they're not exactly you know rocket science to handle I have one like and I, I, I am a moron so I- I- if I can use it without <laughs> crashing it then you know I'm, I'm pretty sure anyone can
1: yeah, well, yeah um...
0: it all comes down to the increased situational awareness and that increases your probability to survive and maximizes your probability to kill It minimizes those, those small mistakes that add up.
3: Yeah, and uh, overall, I think it will be, uh, there will be a, a before and a after uh, to this war in terms of, uh, you know, strategy on uh, drone capabilities. And uh, for all countries, uh, even Russia, I mean, I don't know how it will end, and I don't know how Russia will end, uh, but uh, in any case, you, you will have uh, uh, both sides Ukraine, Russia, and all the country who are probably following all this war. Uh, they will probably learn a lot on um, how to integrate all these small, cheap drones. And uh, I think they were, in fact, actually already doing it. Uh, at least for French army, uh, but uh, I think it will be more um, you know integrated not from now. And um, uh, the question is uh, how it will be in the future uh, since I mean TGI was the most used drone, I guess on the ground. So are we able to produce uh, such similar drone you know cheap and uh, very easy to use? That's I think i I think this is a great question,
2: yeah, and at least we've found at this point or or what I'm seeing is that the counter to these drones isn't just it, yeah. it isn't there yet. I mean we've seen drone jamming devices deployed on both sides, but they just aren't there in the numbers um yeah. yet to actually be that effective because again, it's down to like the fire team level right now, there are just so many of these small drones flying around that it's mm. it's kind of hard to detect and then jam or detect and destroy we've seen the ukrainians have some success um with you know jamming and dropping commercial drones i think there was a video posted by war gonzo um showing ukrainian forces successfully bring down a russian you know i think it was a mavic um but and and again, these are completely unsecured data links on these drones. These are you know 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi. This is, yeah. this is something that's pretty easy, <laughs> <to basics>. <laughs> easy to hack. The basics, easy to hack. Yeah, yeah. And, and you can also pick up the, the funniest part is you can literally pick up where the drone was launched from. It, it, it is openly broadcast really? its return-to-home location. Yeah. For all these DJI drones, if you have, like, it's really stupidly simple software, can actually identify where the drone's return-to-home point is.
3: So, Damn. yeah. Yeah, this is a major problem. But I guess uh, they, they probably will find an issue to fix such, uh, you know, software problems. And, uh, yes. I mean, they will adapt them for armies, I guess. But, uh most important is uh, to find uh, a way for Western armies to get such drones for uh, you know cheap prices and uh, uh, easy easy way to use, uh, and we shall be capable to produce them in our country instead of importing them from China in the future. I think.
2: Yeah, well, I think there's also the other problem that the U.S. spent just an immense amount of money. Yeah, on. Yeah. micro UASs, like that little Black Hornet Nano thing, which like, oh yeah, sure, yeah, that's fine. It's great. It's tiny. It has pretty good uh, life. But I mean, the unit alone, each individual unit, costs two hundred thousand yeah. dollars.
3: This is crazy. Yeah.
2: Where, whereas you can, <laughs> where you can literally go to your nearest like Best Buy buy a DJI Mavic Mini and have probably better sensors, better flight time, and basically just as good um, when dealing with an enemy force, you know, at least for right now. Obviously, in the future, it's better for $500. But, like, I, I think that is a hole that sometimes Western countries fall into of overbuilding mm. something. In fairness, when we overbuild something, it ends up being really good. You know, we get the HIMARS, we get, you know, the, the M777, we get these systems that are just immensely capable. But I think there's also the need to integrate those lower level, you know, I would say lower capability, but commercial capabilities that are advanced really quickly um, by commercial companies. And, you know, if you need to make new software for a Mavic, um, do that if if you don't trust the the chinese software for it which again is an issue moving into the future. Um. Yeah. But yeah, I I definitely think there should be more of that focus on that utilization of commercial assets. Because again, we've seen, you know, Mavic's dropping grenades, dropping 40, 40 millimeter high explosive grenades on Russian positions just over, uh, yeah. over and over yeah. again. And they just they they have this capability that I I really don't think somehow the U.S. doesn't have at the moment. I mean, yeah, sure, we have the Switchblade, but I don't even know what the Switchblade unit cost is. I would have to figure that out. It's not cheap, though.
3: Yeah, um since we're talking about drones, I've noticed that there's no, no at all presence of ground drones. I mean, they're at least uh, almost absent from the ground. And uh, I wonder if it's um, maybe too early for... Uh, I mean, they're not... Uh, that good to be deployed on the ground but uh yeah i i was kind of surprised because we didn't so at least i didn't saw any uh significant uh ground drone and uh yeah i, I was kind of <laughs> disappointed think, to be honest <laughs>
2: i think the problem with a ground drone is that some buck private could run up to it pick it up and steal it I think, yeah. I think that's one of the main <laughs> yeah, issues with it, is you yeah. run into an issue where they're kind of vulnerable at, at the moment. They they don't really have that capability, and, you know, I am I, assuming the sensor capabilities on it, they're slow. And if they overextend themselves and get into an area where, obviously, they would have to go to that area to fight, um, yeah. they just become more vulnerable. Um, yeah. I mean, we've seen the Russian demining unmanned yeah, vehicles. Yeah, 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 and uh, um,
3: it was deployed. But uh, which I don't know. I don't know if it's a if it's a if it adds any great value, honestly, because uh, yeah, it's a drone and uh, it's uh, you know it's uh modern and all this stuff. But I don't know if it's very useful in the end. I mean, uh, for demining, sure, because you're
2: you're keeping a person out of harm's way. Um, mm. you know, you're, you're, you're keeping a potentially valuable person away from something that's going to explode.
3: Yeah, um, sure. Definitely. <laughs> and then there's but, the uh, Ukrainian. Oh no, go ahead. Yeah. The, yeah. The Ukrainian... I, I was going to ask you what, uh, what Ukrainians had in terms of, uh, you know, the drones maybe or stuff like that. I, I'm not uh, very aware on this topic, but, uh, as, as,
2: as we've seen a few times right now, the general Ukrainian school of demining is, um, if it's yeah. an anti-tank mine, <laughs> yeah. throw... I remember. If it's, if it's an anti-personnel mine, throw a small rock If it's an anti-tank mine, yeah. throw a big rock at it. But that's, yeah. that, that seems to be the general direction of Ukraine. And, and no, that's that's hey, I mean okay. I mean... But we we have seen a bit more analog methods used by Ukrainian uh, EOD personnel.
3: Yeah, true.
0: Also keep in mind, though, how the, how the currents have been dealing with mines for the last 20 years just as manually but definitely easier safer ways that would be beneficial to invest in
2: <laughs> yeah yeah and and i think definitely i mean when the ukrainians have to do stuff like deal with pfm mines i think i posted an image today where it's basically mm. just for something of that size class a fishing pole you know <laughs> should work a fishing pole with a rock on the end basically <laughs> um, yeah that I mean, yeah that's... I'm
3: just looking at the picture right now around uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I this mean, is crazy,
2: yeah, for dealing with those small risks again the the demining effort in Ukraine, these guys have gotten pretty experienced um with dealing with a large variety of of these threats um recently, and and again, they're also working in areas that are secure, um these mm-hmm. aren't the guys working on the front lines who are working through static minefields though granted we've seen the defensive lines change so quickly in sort of the past few weeks and even months at this point that static minefields maybe outside of some that the Russians have possibly built in Kherson Oblast um, probably aren't a threat or as much of a threat um, of course the Ukrainians have been leaving behind those German DM-22s um, mm. but th- those are those are more of a one-time threat where it, you know, it goes off and it, it damages a vehicle in a convoy or, or, or something passing by. Um, so I, I just, I don't think we've run into that yet. Mainly the Russian demining efforts at the same time have been going and removing Ukrainian minefields set out between 2014 and 2018. Um, mm. where, where you kind of have those, you know, <clears throat> removing those static Ukrainian fortifications. Um, but that's, that's, you know, mainly for political reasons um to be honest is is sort of removing that former line that the Ukrainians had against the um against the separatist areas. Um so that's 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 yeah. more of a political demining effort. Um but yeah a lot of that operational demining I guess has been sort of less in place.
3: Yeah, and I think uh, this war in the end uh showed that you know all this uh artillery on tanks are still useful uh for uh, any war. And uh, I say that because uh, I, I was hearing for years many people saying, like, you know, tanks are not that useful. And uh, same for artillery. But uh, now in Ukraine, we just uh, realize that how it, it could be uh, important in the end. And uh, by the way, what do you think, um, what kind of tanks uh, the U.S. could send to Ukraine and I, I ask you that because uh, I was very uh, waiting for the day to see uh, uh, Abrams uh, opening fire toward uh T-19, you know. But uh, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? What can they send to Ukraine in yeah. terms of uh, tanks?
2: I mean, the problem with the Abrams is that it just is under the hood. It's such a different thing than the Ukrainian maintainers have been yeah. dealing with. Uh, um, th- there There would have to be a... Completely rebuilt sort of maintenance supply line and sort of this maintaining um, sort of complex built for these Abrams, whereas, you know, it would be a bit simpler if you were to rely on leopards or or something. I mean, it's why, you know, Poland basically got cleaned out of T-72s um Mm. because those those were you know the ukrainians know how to work on them and they know how to use them they fit very easily into you know ukrainian existing ukrainian units um whereas these other systems obviously the ukrainians learn quickly they've demonstrated that they are very competent on you know extremely complex systems that we send them um, I, I will say it's kind of funny with the high Mars, you know, we, we kind of, yeah. we kind of, we kind of wrote them little cards on what to press and, and they did great with them. Um, but that, that was done super quickly. And, and I do think there is a level where the U S should start focus on focusing on, you know, training these forces on, yeah definitely. You know, on, We should be taking Ukrainian maintainers out of Ukraine, or even you know Ukrainian conscripts, and training Mm -hmm. Ukrainian conscripts on the entire you know NATO (laughs) stack of maintaining. Um, Because again, and that is another problem. A lot of these crews that you know should be learning these new technologies kind of have to be in Ukraine right now, fighting um and 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 repairing things and and it is a real issue when you take them out to train them um which is why a lot of that training is still focused on you know training those basic low level units um those those new conscripts on kind of how to fight you know under our current structure and and sort of how to fight in a way that is efficient i guess to their their current situation um but yeah i i that is definitely a problem that i think we've run into um it's kind of hard to take these existing personnel out of Ukraine and train them
3: yeah definitely and uh i just realized that we still didn't uh, talk about uh the main events uh main event for this week which is uh, probably north stream 2 which is uh kind of related to ukraine <laughs> I was in, uh, we and certain time. Avoid that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Who did it? Um... Who knows? I mean, (laughs) yeah, there are definitely, at least for Nord Stream 2, the, what, four current breaches in it? Um, Yeah. Yeah. There are a (laughs) lot of potential culprits, I think, right now that sort of you could point your finger generally at and say, you definitely look suspicious. Obviously, it's right outside of Kaliningrad. It's right outside of Russia's backyard um or in that area Russia's backyard um though it is kind of NATO's backyard at this point now that kind of that that whole Sweden Finland thing has has gone down um yeah but i the political reasons behind it i think both sides have good reasons to want it yeah the that's stream that's what flowing. i was going to say yeah
3: yeah i think both sides have extremely good reason to do it actually. But uh yeah, I wasn't honestly I wasn't expecting such uh you know um attacks on uh you know a pipeline. Uh so yeah. Uh I think uh, we have we have talked a lot uh between us in the group chat and uh exchanged our opinions and I think everyone have good arguments. I think honestly nobody will know in the end <laughs> the end of the story. Uh, Because this this is probably classified uh, somewhere on the earth, right? Uh, So yeah, honestly, it was, um, this is very important because it's going to, uh, uh, of course, uh, make skyrocketing prices uh, on the market. Uh, But outside this, uh, it will be a very problem in terms of, uh, you know, environment and uh, all this stuff, which is. A very problem for I think it's Dorm- Denmark. It's uh, it's uh, the um, wasn't it both the,
2: Denmark and Norwegian waters? Uh, uh, ba-
3: Baltic Sea.
2: Yeah, it might have been both of their waters that were affected. by Yeah, this. I think yeah.
3: it's both of the waters. So this this is going to be a very really important problem for both countries. But uh, yeah, I don't know honestly. I've seen uh, many people's. Talking about it on uh, you know Twitter and all these media,s uh, but uh, nobody will know honestly. Uh, but still, it's important to I think at least talk about it a little bit. But that's it. I won't I won't jump on any conclusion. I won't go to uh, you know this uh, sort of uh, useless talks and say yeah this is the U.S. or this is the Russia or. But this is uh, very important anyway.
0: Yeah, I, I think, think the one thing. Oh, no,
1: go ahead. Sorry.
0: I think. No no worries. I think the one thing that's safe to say is Russia's going to capitalize it no matter yeah. who did it, and they're going to try to use it as a political divide within nations to try to weaken NATO. Um, I think that's the safest thing to say right now without directly pointing fingers. I think Russia's going to utilize it to whatever capability they
1: can.
2: Yeah, I think the one thing that we can agree on right now is that it's impossible to know who did it. Um yep. there is, there, yeah, there, is definitely. there is not enough information to say. Um and that's that's pretty and, rare that you know all and, of us yeah. can agree on that principle that you know we can't know. Um and,
0: especially since it's in one of the most patrolled, most surveyed areas, you know? Like the amount of there's there's so many questions and so little answers. And we're how many
2: days? How many days has it been? Like two days?
3: Yeah. yeah, two or three days, I think. I mean,
2: the other problem is it's also fairly busy water, so it's yes. pretty easy to sneak around as well. Um, there's there's a reason a lot of patrols have to be kept up. It's It's, you know, there are a lot of essential or critical things lying on the seabed there. It's very busy yep. and it's, you know, it's a very green water environment with that incredibly difficult environment to actually surveil. Um, it's it's very easy to sneak around, um, and I mean
0: that brings concern to you know the transatlantic cable, uh, the the transatlantic cables, the uh, telecommunication uh, telecommunication uh, communication cables can't talk yeah. today. God. Um, I, I'm hoping that there's at least increased surveillance on in those after after what happened with with the pipeline, but I guess we'll find out.
2: Yeah. I think also (laughs) a lot of people don't really I mean, as, as some people may not know, um, pretty much all of our internet traffic is terrestrial. It goes through cables. It goes through cables we've laid under the sea. um, doesn't go through satellites, but, um, there's a lot of redundancy to those systems where cutting those cables may only restrict some bandwidth or, or some speed, um, on certain services as well. Um, it's it it would require and again we don't know because no one's casually gone around yet and and decided to cut those you know essential cables um, thank god there, there, there are circumstances where certain cables have experienced failures but only to certain locations um and and that you know it it hasn't caused major issues because they're you know not exactly main connections um but yeah, I mean, in, we saw the cable to Svalbard. Um, I believe it was was that right before the invasion. I believe that it was that it experienced a failure, quote unquote, um, and and yeah. that caused some issues. Um,
3: in in any case, uh, I'd say it shows that any anything out. I mean, there's a war in Ukraine, right? And uh, any targets outside Ukraine can be like targeted. And uh, destroyed, which is uh, very important to understand. I think because let's say if anything happened in the near future uh, with China or something, they will probably target um, places that we won't expect in the first pla- first place. Like I mean, I, I don't think a lot of people were expecting anything on Nord Stream. I mean, uh, unless uh, stopping the fl- uh, the flow. But uh, yeah, this is very interesting to see and uh, I, I guess uh, <laughs> as you said i guess we can agree that uh, nobody knows and um, probably we won't we won't know anyway yeah. so yeah and it, it
2: might continue under these conditions we might see more of this infrastructure attacked yeah. or compromised as long yeah. as whoever is doing it whether that be russia or a nato country or a western country or who knows is able to have that level of extreme plausible deniability because it's really hard for any public group to kind of point fingers and it's hard for, you know, the public in general to get mad at something if they don't really know who's at fault. Um, yeah. So that, that we may see that continue. And especially I think that reality has been established by this most recent attack, if it even was an attack, on, on the Nord Stream yeah. pipeline. The
0: part I was going to say right here, um, by state and non-state actors. So they made sure to mention non-state actors, uh, which I thought was pretty interesting.
2: Yeah, and that's um, the other thing. Russia does have a lot of, like, state-ish organizations that kind of serve under them. called yeah. Wagner, except Wagner is yep. the closest to the Russian state. There are plenty more that yep. have this level of plausible deniability.
0: And also, I'm pretty sure that would also include hacking organizations, um, that foreign or a country maybe not directly but work for and like you look back at the colonial pipeline uh, when it was attacked or when it was they were attacked and the, their database was hacked and all that fun stuff it wasn't done by Russia, it's done by a Russian criminal organization so that's wow. something interesting
2: at the end of the day, though, the hacker on his computer isn't going to be placing explosive charges on the... Exactly, you know, yeah. <laughs> hey, no. you
0: never know. He he could be a very, very useful person. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah, very useful, definitely. And that kind of where but,
2: a lot of the plausible deniability of, you know, hacking can fall apart is where direct action actually happens. And, yes. you know... All of this is super black, and we know nothing about it. And there's only so much we can say from our position, because yeah,
3: definitely.
2: I'm sure all this information is the level of you know classified of if I told you, and I'd have to kill you. It just yeah, you know, probably. It, it isn't stuff that, that we could you know say in any sort of definitive way.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Probably, yeah. Uh, on another uh, topic. Um... I don't know you guys, but um, I'm kind of afraid of what Russia could, uh, how Russia could act if they actually lose the the war. I mean, and by losing, I mean like totally losing the war. Uh, What could be their reaction? Like we've heard uh, a lot of uh, nuclear threats recently, and uh, the question is, will Russia play this game, or is it only uh, bluff? Like often, I'd say, but uh, yeah. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, anytime we talk about escalation, I think there is a certain level of uh, caution. I guess ambiguity.
1: Yeah. Mm.
2: Though the Russians, the Ru- Russian statements have certainly um, been unambiguous in nature. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> though even when the Russians talk like that, I guess there's a certain level of, you know, who knows uh, what they're actually saying. Um, you know, no one knows for sure, to be honest. Um, and I think that's something that we all have to take into account of how much is saber rattling for internal purposes and how much is actually, you know, real.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many factors in play and let's say that Putin was crazy enough to escalate in that manner. You have to consider, his command structure is his is his command structure actually willing to carry out the command? Are they actually able to carry out the command? Um, there's and not to mention the the, the twenty five decision points that would have to be reached by Putin getting to yeah. you know the actual decision to, to pull the trigger not pull the trigger or give the command to him.
2: Yeah, and if people under him would even follow the instructions, exactly, so even even yeah. for something like tactical usage of mm-hmm. a weapon of mass destruction. Um, exactly, and and on top of that, of whether or not a weapon of mass destruction w- would even be useful in this case, you know, I yeah. mean, all these conscript units that we're talking about absolutely do not have the preparation to fight in an NBC environment. They,
3: they well, I uh, I don't think I don't think they really, <laughs> honestly. I think they really don't care about it. Well, they, they honest, still so. need them
2: to at least soak up bullets. If they're just you yeah. know, if they're, if they're keeling over before they even get to the front lines, there's going to be a bit of an issue. Um,
3: yeah, but maybe they will. I mean, let's say if with a big if, if they used uh, any uh, mass de- destruction weapon. Uh, maybe it could target uh, any in- uh, strategic infrastructure, like energy places, like uh, Thermal uh, Power Plant, for example, like they did uh, around Kharkiv Kyr- uh, uh, after the counter-offensive. So, yeah, I don't know. Obviously, they won't send... I, I don't think they will send it like on cities, like, uh, you know, uh, something very close to the front line, but maybe far away behind, so at least to... Uh, cause any rupture in terms of uh, Ukrainian logistic maybe but I don't know
2: yeah and if I can just g- g- go ahead
0: if they were utilized at all they there would be indications first um, like he was hinting to hopefully 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 <laughs> there would be indications hopefully we're not just killing all the Russians and saying, well, I mean well go ahead and kill all the Russians you know what I mean uh, in theory, uh, there would be indications that Russia was planning to utilize. Of uh, mm-hmm. We'd, we'd likely sure. see retrogrades. We'd likely see um, armor elements or something blocking enemies of approach, trying to buy time for a retrograde to utilize it while preserving force. And in theory, my theory at least. Is that if one was if one was utilized, probably be utilized somewhere away from lots of civilians, um, just to try to lessen the international backlash and mitigate the the chance of escalation with the U.S. Because I, I think Putin still still smart smart enough to realize what happens if he just goes off and does whatever he wants.
3: Yeah. Um, um there There's, there's so- lots of
0: what
1: ifs.
2: Yeah, I still think there's the the idea, at least, that Putin is a rational actor, um, though the reality of that is unknown, which I think yeah. is the most yeah, terrifying
3: yeah. part. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, this it's, is it's, the, it's, the most terrifying part. I think. Yeah, go ahead. Exactly, Because like, you, you look at Putin, you look at how he was raised, you
0: look at when he made the announcement that um,
1: they
0: they do this quote unquote military special military operation. He spent what probably. of that announcement talking about the good old days with the USSR. Um, And he he has such a a personal connection with the failure of the USSR that he wants to try to redeem in his mind. And because of that, that's what's scary. If he sees himself as a complete failure and is like, oh, you know what, it's never going to happen, screw it. He's, He's a cornered rat. What does he do? No one knows. No one knows but Putin.
3: Yeah, yeah maybe I... maybe maybe we could see uh before all this uh you, you know uh WMD maybe we will see like I, I won't say huge protests but maybe inside the army or the comm- the Russian common or you know these uh areas of the society maybe someone could try to make a coup after all like uh, in the end of the USSR uh i don't know if it's Okay, but if it's something real, um, like realistic, but uh, I, I, I was thinking about it. Maybe the, someone could just try to make any coup. I don't know. What do you think? If it's
2: yeah. So serious, the problem man. is, and I've talked about this before, is that Putin's, you know, military man, uh, Shoigu. Um, yeah. His entire shtick has been that he's a very good political maneuvering agent. Um, yes, and he's also willing to do things that are fairly distasteful to protect the leadership, mm-hmm. um, a- at least with Yeltsin. Um, before him, before Putin, um, he was, it, it appeared that Shoghi was willing to start an entire civil war, um, in-, in order to sort of scare the um, the the Russian military at the time, um, and that was that was you know definitely concerning. And, and I feel like he might be willing to do that again, because again, this isn't like a speculative thing or as much of a speculative thing about what his personality is like. He's done this before he was prepared to give protesters in the red square or the, in front of the presidential palace, um, Mm -hmm. guns in, in order to, you know, start, start fighting. Um, but I, I, I think there is that element to remember is that Putin has very carefully over the past 20 years surrounded himself with individuals that will protect him. In situations exactly like this, where any other leader would be looking at serious internal turmoil, and Putin has dealt with remarkably little, at least externally appearing to deal with remarkably little.
1: Yeah,
0: I, I mean, I completely agree with that, In and- he was really smart with not only who's going to protect him, but who's also going to risk to him. Um, and that's why we're kind of in the issue of how would one even be facilitated if one was
2: to come around? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the, the the main group of people, at least he's he's potentially threatened by at the moment, are the ones who are extreme to the right and extreme to supporting the war effort um, and, and those are the ones who have probably pressured him into you know implementing it yeah, and, and definitely, action.
3: Yeah, I definitely would, because oh, go ahead. yeah go on uh, I, I was going to say because uh, at the moment uh, the Ukrainians were uh, making their counter offensive uh, I've been reading a lot of uh, Russian analysts and I've, I, I think we've all understood that they were uh, two you know two two schools in Russia, and one of them was saying like we need actually to mobilize people and send them on the ground, and uh, the other one was saying like no need for that, and uh, it seems like the school who wanted uh, mobilization uh, partly won the game. I'd say inside Russia, I mean in terms of no uh, you know um, politics, in- internal politics, uh, and. I, I wonder how it will uh, what will happen if Russia actually mobilizes people and they lose anyway that's the biggest question i was asking my myself honestly because you now they they call for a mobilization they can't go back they can't stop the war or like uh, just uh, you know make their refer- referendum uh, in uh, the areas occupied and say okay this is uh, this is what we got and we stop here now now the mobilized people it means they will they, they will do anything to win anyway and if they won't honestly I don't know how Russia can still stand up to that I mean
0: I think the one potential that there is is that let's say tomorrow Putin makes his announcement, for the annexation. Yeah. Um, he's not going to mean it, but he could propose a, a peace with Ukraine and be like, Hey, we're taking this. We're done. And yeah. then that way we forced uh, Zelensky into a position in which he has to either look like the bad guy, quote unquote, for not wanting peace and then get to, you know, Putin gets to continue his war or somehow you um, Putin ends up being able to claim victory for his, for his people. But we all know that Zelensky and Ukraine or the rest of the world for that matter, wouldn't it, no one would stand for that. Um, yeah. that's been signaled essentially daily by the U S and other nations.
2: Yeah. And again, whatever potential response there is, is a huge question. Um, there are there are ambiguities of course and and i think they're purposely amb- ambiguous um to to what se- any said response would look like um though of course it whatever response would happen if some weapon of mass destruction were were to be used in ukraine it it would be a fairly total response um obviously we would be the ukrainians ro- we would see them rolling around with with m1s you know we might potentially see direct action against Ukraine or sorry, against Russians in Ukraine um, by NATO powers um, because various countries have made it clear that, you know, if there were to be even something like a reactor explosion within Ukraine, that could trigger, trigger article five. And, and I don't think uh, or I think that nuclear weapons being utilized in the country would definitely be akin to something like that. And I mean, I
0: feel like it's not far-fetched that we'd also likely see NATO pull off some offensive cyber attacks against Russia. Um, cyber has the possibility to be, you know, just as damning as, as a nuclear weapon, minus the kinetic action and the death. Um, so that's always an option on the table as well.
2: Where are the rods from God when we need them? <laughs> Yeah, though, granted, there also have been the questions there since about 1999. There have definitely been questions of nuclear primacy um, between NATO and Russia uh, about whether or not there truly is mutually assured destruction still. Um, Though the questions about that have obviously raised some issues on the Russian side of Increase deterrence posture when there is a crisis like this, um, which can raise additional risks. Um, you know, delegating command re- or, or or munitions release orders down to lower level units is, you know, not exactly the most responsible thing to do, but might be necessary if the Russians believe that a first strike could potentially incapacitate, you know, their ability to launch. Um, yep. You know, the Russians don't have a space-based warning network. They rely on over-the-horizon, or not over-the-horizon, but early-warning radar systems. Um, yeah. And stuff like that means that the Russian, the real Russian warning for something like a nuclear attack could be as little as 15 minutes. Yes, or, it's very you know, short if, notice. Or if nuclear-armed mm. cruise missiles were used, the warning could be... When the first, you know, nuclear weapons detonate, yep. no one's really sure. Um, and, and
0: that, and that's exactly what people always kind of forget when they when they think about Russia and why Russia's so so bold with with their stance, because their their capability to respond is so much less than the U.S. and other Western nations.
2: Yeah, and that's definitely. Okay. It's just, it's something to look at. Obviously we're entering a period. I, and I'll be genuine with this one. And I think I've said this before is that we're, we've kind of entered a period with the same amount of, or, or, or a, a quantity of nuclear tension, probably not seen since the Cuban missile crisis and yeah. practical ramifications as well that haven't, I don't think have ever been seen because at the time of the, you know, uh, at the time of the Cuban missile crisis, we didn't have the same capabilities to destroy the world. Like we just we didn't. No, definitely. <laughs> like it was it yeah. was a much more difficult and drawn out process to sort of instigate nuclear war back then. There there were no ICBMs. Everything was bomber based. There were defenses on both ends.
3: Um, yeah, this, it was... N- actually, it was very fucking wild. <laughs> and,
0: and I mean, that's that's also why there was so much attention to it, though, was because the indications were so large. You're able to see indications easily. We're living in an era where indications are hard to come by.
2: You can also turn bombers around. Can't yes. turn missiles around. Yeah. Can't, <laughs> yes. can't turn ICBMs around. So, yeah. yeah, I think we are entering a fairly dangerous period where, you know... I mean, do the Russians launch on warning? If they are to use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine first, would their nuclear arsenal go to launch on warning, which is just such a massive threat that like yeah. it, you, and the... you you get a false one <laughs> unit gets a false alarm and things are going it's done. Exactly. Um, yep. And so that is that is a risk that we see here, that we, we it might not be direct nuclear action or some sort of direct conflict that draws us down the road to nuclear war, but a mistake caused by increased tensions. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, I, and, and I definitely think, again, only one side at the moment is ratcheting up the tensions like there. There is a single side that's responsible for this. This is all completely in Russia's court at, at the moment. Um, they they're they're kind of driving this entire thing and i don't i i mean it's it's their choice really to take these off ramps
3: yeah and uh since we're still talking about russia and ukraine i wanted to like add that i think this is kind of in terms of uh on you know all sharing information on the internet it's uh it was a, a a revolution in terms of uh yeah sharing information since the last uh revolution in like in terms of covering any war i think was uh the gulf war uh it was like uh shared by all television and stuff but now it's like you can literally follow anything on twitter and i was talking with uh someone on the ground and some sometimes they don't even, they're not even aware of what's going on on the ground themselves so sometimes we we even know more than them and uh i think this is very important to take in account and i feel like uh sometimes russia didn't um prepare themselves for all this uh you know wasn't uh part of uh, the war i'd say uh at least at the beginning And finally, we started to see, um, you know, many people's. I I, I mean, um, especially uh, Rebar, uh, you know, Rebar team, uh, Russian team, uh, started to make maps and uh, try to use the same meters in terms of OZINT after a few months. But in the end, uh, what I wanted to say, it's like, it's crazy how, in today we can like follow each step in the ground and have all the information like it's like a streaming basically. It's crazy.
0: Exactly. And I mean I don't think Russia was prepared for the immune lies that would be on them all the time. Um mm-hmm. like like think about it. Who would have thought that we would have watched a battle over nuclear power plant live. A stream.
2: Yeah, I think yeah. there's the other thing of the Russians also haven't been able to control the information narrative, because apparently boomers are far more susceptible to this stuff than pretty much everyone else. I mean, yeah. we've, we've really seen this war governed by or, or at least the information coming out of this war governed by individuals who are much more media savvy um, and, and have a much more or a bit more of a accurate view of what's going on of course there are still and honestly I'm extending this to the Gen X because they're also terrible on the internet um, yeah. sort of there, there are still <laughs> that, that, that element of the internet that are boomers and Gen X that fall down these rabbit holes and honestly the, the same ones are also falling down to the everything Russian is terrible you know everything yes. Iranian is terrible it's all useless it's all you know horrible Um, and I, I, I kind of see the those same people falling down that rabbit hole honestly there are some people who really just should not be on the internet they're, they're kind of just yeah. a bit too susceptible to like yeah. any narrative but in general i mean we've seen things governed by you know nafo which like holy cow russia has yeah been able to counter that online like they
3: <laughs> honestly honestly i was surprised that um, the NA- Nafor uh, movement, I'd say, like movement, take this uh, importance in terms of uh, information war for Indian, because it was used to counter uh, all the Russian narrative in, in, on internet, and I was honestly very surprised that Russia could do like nothing about it. They were not able to provide any, you know, I'd say, counter offensive in terms of information war- warfare and uh, yeah i i say they were not prepared for this and they might um underestimated uh all this internet uh area uh i mean they were using different tactics probably made in uh, during the cold war but uh now time have changed and uh, yeah this is very surprising honestly
2: yeah, and well, I think that... I, I think social media companies have been a bit more on top of it. I mean, ASB mm. News was kicked from Twitter before the Russians reached, you know the outskirts of Kiev. Um, yeah, which more you know locking down on these disinform these you know bodies producing disinformation, you know even the more official ones. I mean, RT is gone basically from the U.S. and and from the West as a whole, effectively. And yeah. RT was a massive <laughs> disinformation operation. Um, but of course all these smaller influences, Influencers as well Are either getting every single one of their tweets With a warning Or they just aren't on, you know, <laughs> are, aren't on Any platforms anymore um, Or they're and,
0: being countered by, by, by other people that actually Know the narrative, the real narrative yeah. And counter, counter the disinformation line.
2: Yeah and I, I think things have been Much better policed in this um, Because again the, the, the reality on the ground is very clear Um, and I think the Ukrainians understand that. And the Ukrainians have been very on top of the information sort of spectrum, um, where, you know, in the early part of the war, they made it clear that if Russians were to surrender to them, that they, you know, wouldn't abuse them. And, you know, there, there was this establishment that, you know, they would hold prisoners of war under, you know, internationally recognized conditions and, (laughs) I I, I think those general things that those steps that the Ukrainians took um, sort of allowed them to kind of put together this narrative um, that definitely helped them. Though at the same time, the Russians were doing things like rolling into Buka and literally just shooting at everyone like (laughs) (laughs)
1: While,
2: while the Russians,
0: while the Russians were committing a genocide. Ukrainians were having soldiers call their moms. And we saw how that played out um, in in the digital age and and, in Rappler and other platforms catching up on that and being like, hey, like, lots of these people don't want to be here. It's a failing effort. Um, Ukraine's treating prisoners of war properly while Russia's conducting
2: war crimes. Yeah, and I definitely think that... Helped Ukraine, um, in in general, A- and again, it's 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 also because there there have been these more significant consequences. This isn't you know disinformation in an election. This is you know we have videos and comprehensive evidence that the Russians committed mass acts of terror and war crimes against the civilian population in Ukraine, and you know it's it, we have videos of it and we have videos of them doing it and. It's kind of hard to disprove that, especially when a bunch of the videos were taken by the Russians. Like
3: Yes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. literally. That's the whole point. And uh, yeah, this is very surprising because I expected them to be more, um, let's say, professional. Like, <laughs> I don't know how to say, but it's, it's it was so weird to see such mistakes. I mean, everyone had a camera and they, they just recorded all of their... Um, acts on the ground so i don't know what i, I don't, honestly I, I don't understand what's going on in russia these times and i think even russians themselves don't really understand what's going on and uh yeah this is very surprising but it's also interesting that to see while while they were doing their war in ukraine uh they were still attacking on different uh subjects in terms of information warfare and um i, I say that because i've seen it uh, in particular in Africa uh, we've we've seen many acts of uh, you know um, uh, disinformation, uh, fake news spreaded on the internet and uh, all this uh, stuff. I, I mean they're doing it in Africa, but I feel like it just failed in in Ukraine in the end.
0: I think part of the reason why Ukraine was able to you know succeed so much with the narrative so. Is because it wasn't, it wasn't disjointed. Everyone yeah. was on the same page, both on social media and also politically. I mean, when you look at how good Zelensky did with speaking to yeah. nations individually and also United Nations in NATO, he literally critiqued every single speech for each nation to understand how Ukraine feels. Like when he ta- when he spoke with um, leaders from the U.S., he brought up Pearl Harbor. Like, he literally, him and his writers did an amazing job transcribing the narrative to world leaders, so that way the world leaders could understand what was going on. Meanwhile, he's also making tweets. People are all on the same page all over, both on social media and politically. And that just completely overrushes an ability to maintain a single narrative. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I again I don't think Russia planned for more than three days out in the no. war.
1: No. <laughs>
0: and this and the, the
2: crazy
1: the crazy thing
2: about that is I don't even think they planned three days. Like
0: you look at it, the there plan, was a plan. Like, oh. if,
2: if you look at the plan, it made a ton of sense if everything if, went correctly. If they if <laughs> they would have ena-
0: if they would have enabled the operations, but they didn't enable operations successfully.
2: And like uh, that they would yep. have taken Kiev in three days and Zelensky would have either been forced from Ukraine or would have been captured or killed. Yep. None of those things happened. Nope.
0: Too and bad they didn't
2: actually do some And I've said this several times, 2014 broke the Russian military complex. It broke Putin's thinking. It broke Russian thinking in general on what Ukraine was. I, yes. I, there was the general idea that Ukraine wasn't well held together. The you know Ukrainian government was incompetent. There was massive pro-Russian sentiment in Ukraine. I mean, it's yeah. why there was such an aggressive push in the south was because you know they thought that the population there would be very friendly to them, um, and that just wasn't true. And we yeah. saw people by, you know, 24 hours into the invasion, I mean, heck, 12 hours into the invasion, you know, putting up Molotov cocktails I- in Kiev. And, and we saw. Yeah,
3: um, literally, I remember uh, seeing the mayor of Kiev, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, I, I forget his name, but um, he was likely before the war, he was, uh, I'd say, not close to Russian, but he was okay with them. And uh, when the war started, he just joined the army and started to, um, you know, just he just literally fought against the Russian. And I think it's a, a massive, um, how to say, they they all this war destroyed all the confidence Russia has in its, uh, like in its people, in its own country. And uh, I think we we've seen it like with all these people fleeing fleeing uh, from. Like, literally leaving Russia when they started mobilization. Like, nobody wanted to go on the war. And we've seen plenty of videos of people that just uh, wanted to, you know, just leave this this mess. And, uh, yeah, this uh, it was a kind of psychological trauma for Russia to not win this fast as they wanted, as they planned, at least.
2: Yeah, I just, I, I generally think that... It's been difficult, obviously. been it's, it's, yeah. it's more difficult than they thought.
3: Yeah, definitely.
0: And I mean, like you said, it all comes down to to the months leading leading to the operations to the to the initial quote unquote seventy two hour operation plan that they had. Um, faulty key assessments um, led to their ultimate demise and where we are right now. i um, having to try to rework what they have to do. Um, they failed to actually analyze the, the portions that they should have analyzed, both politically, economically, um, militarily, uh, infrastructure, you name it. They, they essentially analyzed it wrong. They, they did not understand how the population would react. They didn't, they didn't understand the amount of training the military in Ukraine had received. And they failed to comprehend how all that put together was going to lead to a hell of a fight for them
2: yeah and and i think that just that that ukrainian sort of i i wouldn't call it a nationalistic sentiment but more a a sense of togetherness of yeah uh, and, and yeah there are nationalistic elements of it but it was you know in this face of an invader basically of of someone who wanted to take over their way of life and was being pretty open about it uh, was being pretty obvious about what they wanted to do russia didn't really guard themselves or 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 hide their true intentions
3: yeah and i think it's kind of obvious like let's let's try to 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 be at at their own place i mean the place of ukraine is you obviously you you will fight for your country you will fight for anything does it doesn't matter what's your political opinion you will obviously fight for your country you will fight for people you love you will defend your 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 country basically so yeah it's, that's just normal i don't know what russia expected to be honest
2: yeah and I think on that note, we'll probably wrap things up. I, we've been going for a bit now, but um, yeah. <laughs> thank you, both of you, for for coming in and subbing. No, absolutely. Thanks so, for having us. Uh, it's been extremely you. enjoyable um, to talk to all of you.
0: Thanks. Absolutely, man. It was a blessing to do it again
2: yep and i'm just gonna wrap that up we will hopefully have uh original people back i i do hope to have both of you back on at some point <laughs> maybe, maybe two weeks from now who knows yeah. uh, uh we will definitely be back at some point and again thank you for for coming on at such short notice
3: thank you yeah thank you bye